turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. We will continue day 2 or Sunday 2 in our series through Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week we covered verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. We will pick up in verse 5 and work our way through chapter 2 in its totality here this morning. The Lord permits us to go that far. It's good to be with you. It's good to stand in this pulpit and to hold this word in my hands and together for us to look together into this word as a church, as a people who follow fast after the God of this historical account. Last week we saw the vast sovereignty of God. He's a really big God who is sovereign. He rules and reigns over everything and everyone. And it was vividly clear as we looked at the history of Israel and how they were carried off into exile with the Assyrians, the northern kingdom that is, and how the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off into exile by the Babylonians. God did all of this work in the deployment of people, good and bad. God accomplished His perfect will over His people Israel. In punishing Israel for unfaithfulness, we see God's sovereignty. In restoring Israel out of their exiles, we see His grace and mercy enveloped within His sovereignty. And today we're going to delve deeper into the sovereignty of God. You can't escape it in Ezra and Nehemiah. We will never graduate from that topic. It will be interwoven throughout all that we say from these two books, and I dare say the whole Bible. But this morning, we're going to add an element to it. We must see that in God's sovereign rule and reign, man also is responsible. and has a role and a function that's born out of obedience. God. We don't need to get lopsided here. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. So as we pick up in verse 1, I want to read all of chapter 1 briefly, and we'll be set for for moving through some new turf in verses 5 through 11. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here's what he wrote. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then Ezra narrates this. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. 
Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. And all the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. What a mighty God. We've gathered together this morning to worship. He did all of this. Through His people and sinful unbelieving people. God works through his people. He stirred up a pagan king in Ezra 1.1, no doubt. But in verse 5, we see that God stirred up his own people. He stirred up the heads of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. God stirred them up. They didn't act on their own. They were prompted by God in his initiative. God initiated and man responded. Do you remember earlier this year, Philippians 2, 12 and 13? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. That is what is happening here with the men, the fathers, the heads of households in Israel. Yes, God is sovereign, but absolutely man is responsible for responding to the sovereign God. We've got to be balanced in our doctrine. Last Sunday was all full throttle sovereignty of God. This Sunday we add our element of responsibility into God's working. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is a very familiar verse uh, to all of us. Uh, like what Russell Moore says about it, he says it's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament for the church. And we have to be careful with this verse. But Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, speaks specifically to the context of the Judeans returning to Jerusalem out of the exile to Babylonia. And in that context, here's what God says. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. Well, we're at the fulfillment moment here in Ezra. He says, I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back and the place from which I sent you into exile. We often don't read verse 10 before we get to verse 11. The context is Judah coming back to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile. God said these words to Judah, saying after 70 years, I have plans for you that are good and not evil. If there's any doubt this morning after last Sunday's sermon, 
there's any doubt, I want you to know God is sovereignly ruling and reigning over every intricate detail that happens on this earth that he established. God is sovereign, but we must see that man is responsible because man will call upon him and do this with all of their heart. And in relationship, God will respond as he's promised upon their calling. So this morning, we need to just establish again from last Sunday, the Lord stirred up the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus. And at the same time, the Lord stirred up the hearts of his people in Judah and Benjamin and their priests and their Levites. He did this simultaneously because he had a bold will and a bold promise to fulfill. Let's look at verse 6. Ezra tells us that all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. This is an amazing truth. The Babylonian people, the neighbors of these Israelites that are heading back to Jerusalem, the Babylonian people, their captors, are offering them up vessels of silver and gold and with beasts and costly wares. Boy, this sounds very familiar. Our God has worked like this before with these people. For you see right here, what we have is nothing short of a second exodus. This is exactly what happened to Israel when they departed Egypt and went through the Red Sea. In that moment of exodus, we see God giving the people of Israel treasures, needed treasures. They're going to be used for poor purposes, by the way. But needed treasures as they headed off to become a nation in a land that was promised. Exodus 12, listen to Exodus 12, starting in verse 33. The Egyptians, this is centuries before when the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. We've got to get these Israelites out of here. This God of theirs is going to kill us after all these plagues. Verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have what they asked. And then I love this verse. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. It was the friendliest plundering you could ever imagine. God did this. God said, I need to load my people up with treasures, clothing, and beasts. Because I've got a purpose for those things. So I'm going to incline the captors. Of Egypt, Babylonia, to find favor with my people, and they're going to load them down with riches so that people can see that I am God and there is none other. So, just as God provided for his people through the gifts of the Egyptian armies, here in this second exodus, coming off of an exile out of the promised land back into the promised land, God inclines the Babylonians to load them up. I want you to look at another element that relates to this second exodus theme. 
We're given a head count. In Ezra chapter 2, look specifically down at 64 through 67, really just verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360. And if you understand from earlier in the text, Ezra 2, 2, this is just the number of the men. There's women and children that come along with this group, but the men are numbered. Well, the same type of numbering is done in the Exodus centuries earlier. Exodus 12, 37, and all the people of Israel, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. We've got to stop and look at these numbers. These numbers matter. It's a second exodus here. It's not like the first one. They were not captive in Egypt because of their sinfulness. God captivated them in Egypt because a drought was coming and he needed to preserve his people. And they grew to millions. But once they got to the promised land, they sinned against God and they denied all the prophets that came and warned them. And God promised them exile and they got it. And now they're coming back into the promised land for a second time, but they're not 600,000 men. 42,000 men. I want you to think in all the centuries from the, the time they entered the promised land until the time that they were exiled to Babylonia, how big might have the nation of Israel grown to? 600,000 men, not including women and children. I'm, I'm thinking uh, double it for women, so 1.2 million. And then how many children did they have when they We're talking millions of Israelites leaving Egypt, but here we have 42,000 men. They've been pinned back severely because the rod of the wrath of God in Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar brought discipline to these disobedient people. Yet, God still is faithful to bring a remnant home because God still has a mission to accomplish. So now they are a meager remnant of the nation they once were. They're not today in this moment of Ezra the great nation that they once were, but guess what? They're not also the great nation that they will become one day, one day that we are still even waiting for. So let's work a little bit further. Let's look at verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out vessels to the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Boy, that's a troubling sentence. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, and you can see the accounting that takes place. All of this must be understood in the context of the first chapter of Daniel. When this exile, this Babylonian sacking happened in Daniel 1, just listen, 1 through 3, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. We need to understand when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. We need to understand what's going on with this transfer of vessels. 
the ultimate trophy of victory in war in that day and age was when you could capture not only a people and not only their land, but if you could capture their vessels that they used to worship their gods, that was ultimate defeat. It was a statement of, not only have we defeated you, but our gods have defeated your God, Israel. Do you think that was true? Let's say no. Because God stirred these Babylonians to come up and sack Jerusalem and haul these vessels off, didn't he? It's troubling. But Nebuchadnezzar took the elements that God gave these Israelites to use in worshiping him, and Nebuchadnezzar put them in the treasury to his God. That seems wrong, doesn't it? But we need to understand, like we saw last week, that Nebuchadnezzar did this as an instrument in the hand of God. So God transferred his vessels of worship from his people Israel to a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. God did that because God raised him up. And while we're still reading, the God who did this transferred them back to Israel. By taking them from Nebuchadnezzar at the hand of Cyrus and handing them back over to his people as he calls them as a small remnant back into Jerusalem. Big God. Let's stretch our minds to a biblical view of God here this morning. These vessels. are God's. They are His always, and He directs their stewardship. Always. They were never in the wrong hands. Yet they were in the wrong hands. Right? They belonged in Nebuchadnezzar's treasury for a season of discipline. But they didn't belong there because the people should not have been disobedient. This is how we need to understand God. Big, bold, sovereign, ruling and reigning. There are not circumstances that happen on this earth. There are wills of God that are being played out. And let's just look now at the last verse of 11 there in chapter 1. All these did Sheshbazar bring up, people and vessels, when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. I want you to know that that right there, so far to date, is one of the most exciting sentences in the book of Ezra. The people are brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This was unthinkable to the people. This was unthinkable to Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) No way. We've conquered them. We've even got their vessels. We've beat their God. Their God can't help them because our gods beat their God. This is an unthinkable thought. And here we have this truth. They are brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem, just like Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 29. After 70 years, I will visit you again. What God promised, God was fulfilling. Man was acting on God's promises, but God promised it and enabled the man to act on it. And this all happened at an appointed time. God specifically dialed this into a 70-year exile. And God is acting right on time. 
It was a long journey home. Sheshbazar is the governor of Judah. He's a Jewish man, but he's got a, a Babylonian name, Sheshbazar. It's just like Daniel. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. We don't know Sheshbazar's Jewish name. But from Babylon to Jerusalem, it was a four-month trip. It took Ezra in chapter 7 four months because the good hand of God was upon him. Four months to travel from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The terrain was difficult. The distance was long. The group was large. We've got women and children and men and animals and vessels and carts. And these people were leaving what they knew to be normal. Here's where the responsibility of man comes in. God stirred them up, but these people had to act in obedience. And they're leaving normal. Many of them, if not most of them, were born in Babylonia. They're leaving normalcy, prosperity, and even security in a strange way. Because normal is secure, isn't it? This decision to go to Jerusalem in obedience and rebuild promised insecurity and hardship and suffering and we will see it starting in chapter 4 and beyond it's not safe to obey this sovereign god and go home it was safe to remain in babylon in a crazy way but they had to sacrifice to leave babylon and you consider how much they had assimilated into that culture to now leave it this is a great and tremendous sacrifice that it can only be done if God stirs up their hearts. Okay, so neat, Pastor. It's a neat history lesson. And we need to study history on occasion, especially when we come to a historical book. But what are we supposed to do with this ancient history? What does this have to do with us? Well, I want you to know that God's people, including us today, Spiritual Israel, God's people, need deliverance from exile. There's bondage that people need freedom from. There's an ultimate exile for God's people that is found only in the life of Jesus Christ. So we have to look at history in Israel, and then we have to take it and say, okay, how does this apply to Jesus Christ? Because the whole scriptures are about Him. So where's Christ in all of this? That's why we've gathered. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4, and I want to show you where Jesus Christ is. It'll leave Ezra to go to Luke. There's an appointed hour for us to be delivered from the exile that we experience as sinners. We need to be brought back into the courts of God. And in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, we read some amazing truth from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Luke 4, 16, And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Picture God in the synagogue. This is God. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who he oppressed or who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them. Today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jeremiah 29.10 After 70 years, I'll revisit you and we're going home. Here he quotes a passage from Isaiah. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For you see, Jesus Christ came to live a perfect life with no sin. The life that Adam was intended to live, but he failed. The life that you were intended to live, but you failed. He lived a perfect life so that he could die a substitutionary death on the cross for you and for me and for Adam. And in so dying, he was Buried because he was certainly dead. And he was dead so that he could rise from the dead on the third day. And it's in this resurrection that we are freed. We are entered into a land of liberty if we believe that he died in our place and he rose from the dead on the third day. This is the liberty that Jesus Christ proclaims to us. We were once captives. We have been impressed by our sins. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, we, like Israel, are delivered out of our exile back into the promised land that God has for us. That's what this means in history. That's why we study old books in this church. Because all these old books point us to the newer books. And the new books never run out of time either, by the way. Because God is the God of us forever. So there is an appointed time. And Jesus says, this time is now. I have come to deliver the captives. But there's another time that we're waiting for as well. Because you see, we're still in a type of exile. We still live in fallen and broken bodies. We still live in a fallen world. Just look at what happened last Sunday night and Monday morning in Las Vegas. And we understand that we don't belong here. We're in an exiled place. And we're waiting for another deliverance from the exile that we're still in. We're out of exile in one sense in that we're born again into eternal life. But we need to get out of the exile that we're in and get into the new heavens and the new earth that have been promised to us. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw... John says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I have heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of the Lord God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is just like Israel coming back into Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple, and God's going to be in their midst. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's an exile exit. That we're waiting for. 
Sunday night and Monday reminded us of this. Our travails this week reminded us that we are in an exiled state. We don't belong here and we long for God to fulfill His promise to take us back to where we belong. Back to a Garden of Eden where things were right and God and man dwelt together. This is what we long for. Just like the Israelites in Babylon longed for. Yeah, we're still in a type of exile. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, we are called, uh, the, the Jews are called elect exiles. We're with them. We are elect exiles as believers in Jesus Christ. And we're waiting to get to our homeland. God's promised we're going there. Jesus says at the end of Revelation, surely I am coming soon. What do we say to him? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So you see, we're people living on a promise of being delivered out of our exile. We're waiting to be delivered into a promised land. It's called New Jerusalem. Are you waiting well? Are you waiting worshipfully? The day is guaranteed. It is certain to come. He's done this before in Israel's history past. He will do it just like he did in the past again. And I urge you to live like that. Live like that. Yeah, Jeff, people despaired over last Sunday. Some people scoffed at God, but some people prayed. We're counted amongst those who pray because we know There is a deliverance from this exiled life that we live in. Well, I want to do something with you. I want to go back to Ezra chapter 2. I want to load up chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and I want you to read along with me. And I've got a very good purpose for this, and you'll see this at the end. But you bear with me as I stumble over some names. I've read this many times out loud, and I've said many of these names a different way every time. But I'm not shy to read it because this is the Word of God. And I've got a purpose for this. Now there were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Ba'ana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonakam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. 
the sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Atter, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaneth, 42. The sons of Kiriath, Arim, Shephira and Be'eruth, 7.43. The sons of Rama and Jeba, 6.21. The men of Michmas, 1.22. The men of Bethel and Ai, 2.23. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Migbish, 1.56. The sons of the other Elam, 1.254. The sons of Harim, 3.20. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 7.25. The sons of Jericho, 3.45. The sons of Sinai, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Imar, Imer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. And then the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hadoviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atter, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, in all 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasupa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sihaaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanah, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rehaiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufah, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bezluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasporeth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Ja'alah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatai, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth, Hazabaim, the sons of Amai. If you're visiting with us, we don't do this every Sunday, by the way. 58. All the temple servants and all of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came from Tel Malah and Tel Harsha, Cherub and Adan and Emmer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekoda, 652. Also the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hekaz, the sons of <clears throat> Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. They sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. They were not found there, and <clears throat> so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. 
The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, they also had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability they gave, and to the treasury, the work, 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites... Some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. I'm going to be sore after that. Why is that there? It's quite a read. You're expecting a child and you need help with names. I've served you well today to show you an inventory. All scripture is God breathed, and it's useful. It's very useful. It's useful for training, reproof correction, teaching in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. What do we do with this, God? (laughs) This is very useful Scripture. We need to look at this Scripture rightly. Yeah, it's a list of a bunch of names. There's 125 names there. Now, a bunch of numbers. But we must read passages of Scripture like this, and we must see this as a monument to God. We go to Washington, D.C. to see the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, don't we? In the World War II, we saw those a few years ago. These are monuments to men who sacrificed. But this right here is no monument to some men. This is a monument to God, a monument that says God is faithful, God is sovereign, and God is always yes to His promises. This is a monument chiseled into our scriptures. And we are to read this list of these people and these items, and we are to say, what a mighty God. He is the living God. His name is Yahweh. He is the I Am forever. And he doesn't take a vacation. And he does not get caught by surprise. He is worthy of being believed and followed and worshipped and obeyed. Because he's a God that's caught up in all the details of his great plan. And his great plan is never off. It's always on. Always on. This is a monument in all of its details. Tonight in the chapel, I'm going to break down that list. We don't have time this morning, but tonight there are things that we need to lift out of that list. But I want to take you to verse 70 for that closing verse, just to say this. This closing statement settles the monument 
concept that I'm talking with you about here. Because we see that the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, they lived in their towns, not in Babylonia. They lived in their towns in Israel that God put them in long ago. And all the rest of Israel was in their towns. Because God acted amongst His people. And He hasn't quit. He has not stopped doing these things. We learn about our God presently and futurely by reading of our God pastly. This return in verse 70, this is the first wave of three. You know, we haven't even met Ezra yet, and he wrote this book. We don't meet him until chapter 7. But Ezra comes back into Jerusalem in chapter 7 with a second wave of exiles that are being imported back into Jerusalem. And then when Nehemiah starts in chapter 1 of his book, he brings a wave. And you know what? There were three waves that left Jerusalem and Israel for Babylonia 70 years earlier. God is reversing his curse. On his people. So yes. Ezra chapter 2 is a monument. A memorial. To God. These names were as good as written. Long before the journey home. And certainly long before the journey out of Jerusalem to begin with. These names were written and known by this God. Of the Bible. God planned it. And brought it about. Well, I want you to know that there's another monument that has been written. We don't have precise access to this monument, but there's a book that has been written that is a monument to God, not the men. Do you remember our study in Philippians? There's these two ladies that are fighting in Philippians chapter 4. Here's what it said. Paul writes to the Philippian church, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord because they don't. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, here it is, whose names are in the book of of life. There's a book written. It's the book of life. And it's a monument to God who has elected exiles to be in this book of life. John tells us about this book of life. Revelation 3, 5. Jesus says, I will never blot a man's name out of the book of life because he will be a conqueror clothed in white garments. I'll not remove a name from this book. Revelation 13, 8, John tells us that this book of life was written before the foundation of the world. Wow. That's a long time ago. And that's before a lot of stuff happened. We've got a sovereign God that wrote the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That's the title of the book. Revelation 21:27 speaking of the new Jerusalem nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life 
will enter into the new Jerusalem that's been promised. There's an exile, there's a list of names in a book, and those names are the people that are going into the new Jerusalem. Are you in this book? Are you on this monument to God? You have something to do with this. You must believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And when you believe, the fulfillment of your name being in that book will happen. If you never believe, it's because your name's not in the book. If your name's not in the book, it's because you never believed. This is big turf here. We're we're in high altitude for the moment. Take a deep breath here. Revelation 20, 15. If anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This book is a big, big deal. And it is a monument to God, just like Ezra chapter 2 is a monument to God. Are you in this book? That's the ultimate question of every human being. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain as a substitute atonement for your sins? Do you believe this? You must. And if you do genuinely from your heart, guess what? Bang, you're fulfilling the fact that your name was in a book that was written before the foundation of the world as a monument to God as you're invited into the new Jerusalem when Jesus Christ comes again. Are you among the elect exiles that will enter the new Jerusalem? Is your name in the book of the Lamb's book of life? Is your name found on this monument to God? Here's how you get there. Don't miss this. We're coming right to this table now. If you believe in Jesus Christ and His substitutionary atonement for your sins, your name is in the book of life, the book of the life of the Lamb. And you will enter the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and experience eternal life with this Lamb forever, as you were designed to do. If you do not believe in the Lamb, When Christ returns, you will be cast out. He will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Your name's not in my book because you didn't believe. Jesus says that place is a place of outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where fire burns and bodies die, yet they don't die. And worms eat flesh, but they never get their fill, and the flesh never runs out to eat. This is a horrifying place. It is truly described as hell, and it's a real place. So there's the New Jerusalem, if your name's in the book, and there's hell and outer darkness and separation for all of eternity from Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, if you don't believe. So this morning, you have to say, is my name chiseled into the monument, the Lamb's book of life? And it's there through belief and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. That's why we study Israeli history. Because God doesn't change. He works over and over so He can clearly reveal Himself to us. 
He's not hiding in the shadows from us. He's got a neon sign in Ezra saying, this is how I operate. I'm still working this way. You Christians in the 2017, even at Rocky Point Baptist Church, you are Israel. I've grafted you in. I want to take you to New Jerusalem, out of exile. Believe in me. Find your name in my book to my glory and to your benefit. So this morning as we come to this table, Christians in this room, we come because our name is in a book through our faith in Jesus Christ. We are to remember the work of the Lamb who was slain that provided us the means for getting chiseled into this book because we didn't just get there work was done to get us there and God did the work in Jesus Christ he broke his body he shed his blood and if we believe in that being done in our place we get the benefit of salvation through him we remember this as often as we partake of these elements so Christian as you come to this table this morning celebrate the fact that you have believed in the God who called you to believe. And your name's found in a book. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm going to encourage you to stay away from this table. It not, lightning's not going to strike you. But, but stay away because you're not yet ready to remember because you don't yet believe. I'm so glad you're here. I want you to watch us worship Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And we hope that through something like this, you would say, you know, I need to, I need to consider this Lamb, this Jesus that was slain. But until you believe in Him, you're not ready to remember His body broken for you and His blood shed for you. That's what we're doing with these elements. It's my prayer that you would join us at this table soon in the future. We'd love to talk with you about that. But until you believe, this meal is not for you. It's for Christ's people presently. If you're visiting with us and you've been baptized as a believer into faith in Jesus Christ, you're welcome. We have an open table from that standpoint. You do not have to be a member of our church to partake, but we do think that you need to be a member of the church, a body of Jesus Christ, to partake of this meal. I'm going to lead us now in a time of prayer, and we're going to transition into taking these elements and continue our worship by remembering the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Father, would you stir our hearts privately now to pray to you and to worship you for the truths that we've seen from your scriptures and to reconcile with you through repentance as we prepare to come and rightly take a meal in remembering Christ's atonement for our sins. Jesus, we gather in your name to remember your work. We're so thankful we have this table to come to. We're so thankful we have a church to come to. That being people that believe like us. 
We do this as a family, as believers, not as independent contractors. I pray that you'd use this time of worship to be glorified and to stir up among us love for one another and love for you. And we want this so that the world will know that you sent, you came, and you died and rose. Carry us now through this time of worship. We pray this in your name. Amen.